Hello, my name is Sarah Mukherjee and this is Sustainable Matters, the podcast all about big ideas and hope for the planet, a show where we are realistic about the challenges we face. This is not a debate among scientists. This is not a debate amongst technocrats. This is about the choices we are making as voters. This is about who we are. But also optimistic about the future. The graduate students I've worked with the last few years are absolutely awe-inspiring. I mean, first of all, they seem to be much more brilliant than I can ever remember being at that age. This week's guest is Rachel Kite. In 2019, she was named by Time magazine as one of the 15 women leading climate action. Until June this year, Rachel was the Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University, the oldest graduate school of international affairs in the US. She was the 14th person to hold that position, but the first woman. Rachel has also worked as Special Representative of the United Nations Secretary General and CEO of Sustainable Energy for All, a think tank launched by Ban Ki-moon in 2011. She still works as a Climate Action Advisor to the UN Secretary General. As World Bank Group Vice President and Special Envoy for Climate Change, involved in campaigning for the passage of the Paris Agreement. Wow, what a CV. And she's also a complete powerhouse, as you'll hear from the interview, but one who credits the Girl Guides for teaching her a lot about community and relationship, which she says is vital for affecting change at every level. So I started by asking her about young Rachel and whether she had any notions of building a career in sustainability. So I think there's a combination of two factors, really. One is my dad, who was a a line engineer for the electricity board, but he was a health and safety guy at heart. And I think through osmosis, I just picked up (laughs) a whole bunch of stuff there. And he was laid off when the electricity boards were privatized and basically reinvented himself as an energy efficiency guy and ran a energy efficiency business for architects and for housing associations and for local authorities as the EU started to try to drive energy efficiency through the union. The other thing that happened is that, you know, I was growing up in the east of Lincolnshire, just outside Boston, and due to geopolitics, the United States put a bunch of nuclear warheads on our soil. (laughs) U.S. Air Force jets would come screaming in training bombing runs across sort of Freeston Shore and across the Wash. It sounds a bit trite, but that kind of politicized me or it kind of like made me think about the world. And I became very interested in then, you know, our place in the world and Europe And at that time, the the promise of Europe was a promise for young people of a different kind of Europe, a different kind of relationship between East and West and a different relationship between Europe and the rest of the world, a more benevolent one. And of course, in order to get the East and the West together, that meant peace. But it, you know, the issue that really bound us together in the 80s was the environment, because if sulfuric acid was coming up from filthy power plants in the east it was raining down on the west and suddenly politics and the environment and peace all sort of became fused in my mind and I think that's where my sustainability journey started from riding my bicycle around the wash and watching the odd uh, 
Air Force bomber uh, flying so close that you can actually see the pilot's hat or helmet. <laughs> but, um, e- I, well, it's the same now even. I mean, it's one of the things is, uh, uh, that we've noticed in the work that I'm has done with people from disadvantaged communities is how little has changed. And certainly when you were that young girl looking at the fighter jets, people from working class communities, quote, did not work for the UN. They did not become <laughs> leaders of, um, of of hugely influential colleges in, in the States. There must have been an, a, an inner certainty uh, from you that you you knew what path you wanted to travel and and you were prepared to to, to do it and and perhaps not listen to the voices who were going to tell you you can't do that. I was not aware of any certainty inside. I mean, I was interested in the world. I I had wanderlust for sure. Then I think the story is one of a series of extraordinary women who saw in me something that I wasn't aware enough to see in myself from my headmistress, uh, Jessica Mary Webb at Boston High School, through to my guide leader, Rita Sandifer, who forced me to sort of go through a series of sort of almost like auditions for young leadership in the Girl Guides, to Jane Lewis, who's still alive and well and kicking uh, in Wales, who sort of trained us all on etiquette and how to speak in public and how to be young leaders. You know, this was a, a set of women who sort of intervened in my life and mentored me and gave me the confidence then to look at a broader stage. The, the Girl Guides was really extremely formative for me. And then, you know, the friends that I made there are still my friends, you know, still friends today all over the world. I think also uh, I went on then to become involved in organised youth politics in the UK. So under Margaret Thatcher's prime ministership the, the the british youth council became a very important part of the fabric of of the country that was trying to put some kind of guardrails over the sort of economic plan that she was uh, pushing forward that's really interesting that you say you didn't have a particular kind of steely determination but you were encouraged by those role models i know that equity and climate change and sustainability are, are very close to your heart do you think that path is available for young people wherever they are in the world these days? No, I think it's become more complicated. Across the Western world, there's been a dilution of what we used to call associative life. In, in French, it's la vie associative, you know, the sort of the joining, the belonging, the, the organisations and the sort of fabric of uh, community and society and and we know that opportunities for young people especially young people coming from low-income or vulnerable backgrounds are are vastly diminished because of cuts in public services uh, again and again and again and it's not just in the UK but elsewhere and I, I think that what's so important when you're young when I think back to my youth is is meeting people who are different from you, different by class background, different because of racial background, ethnicity, gender, identity, whatever. I think that's that's just really important. Rubbing along with people who are different from you is such a important skill, as well as being sort of you know, a part of your moral fab- fabric. And I, I worry. And of course, the environment is a great leveler, right? I mean, then as a guide leader, you know, taking inner city kids out, you know, into the countryside so that they can see where milk really came from. 
was an important part of, of, of who I was as, as, as I went off to college and then, you know, worked in my first job. So I think that it's, it's, it's critically important that young people from every walk of life, A, get to mix with each other and B, you know, get to be in places which challenge or inspire them in a, in a way that daily life might not. And I think we've got far less of that. And we pay a price for that then as those young people grow up. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think perhaps one of the most frustrating things, I and mean, particularly as a person of colour, you realise how little has changed. George Floyd, I think, was a very much a, a point that, I mean, not just minoritised communities, but if you've had all that rubbish in the 90s that a lot of people went through, you realise not a lot has changed in that intervening time. And I think that made a lot of people justifiably angry. And I, I'm really interested that you are, um, you, you're very direct in your assessment and very, very little of it is positive sometimes of, of the way that politicians or governments are dealing with climate change and dealing with injustice as well. Do, do you think that you, know, you we haven't got time to mess about. Are you just angry, or, or what? What's motivating those those very trenchant, you know, comments and conversations that you have? Uh, my my goal is not to berate, but but I think that you know, there's an extraordinary responsibility that comes with public office, and there's an extraordinary responsibility that comes with a position where you have a, a, a platform, where you have means, where you um, where you have the access to the information. So when I worked at uh, the World Bank, one of my sort of responsibilities was with a change in leadership at the bank to try to ensure that the new incoming president understood the impact of the climate crisis on the bank's mission, which was to eradicate poverty. You know, after a lot of briefing and a lot of sort of internal sessions, the the incoming president, Jim Young Kim, turned around to me and he said, so the acid test of a leader is, what did you do when you knew? And I said, exactly, exactly that. And so I think that that burns brightly. And it's, it's not just for me, but there's, there's, a, there's a lot of women who, who are in leadership positions or in positions of responsibility. And you know, we may positionally be in disagreement with each other. You know, somebody may be in charge of a bank's policy on something. Somebody may be in an NGO. But we we basically have a philosophy that there's more that unites us than divides us, and that there is a responsibility for leaders at this moment in time to act because we have to do something with what we know, and we do know that we are flirting with more than flirting with danger at the moment. So yeah, I think that the reason to speak out clearly. And broadly, is is also to to make this part of a public debate. This this is not a debate among scientists. This is not a debate amongst technocrats. This is about the choices we are making as voters, choices we are making as congregants, as community members, as members of the gardening club. I mean, this is about who we are, right, as a community. Um, and so we shouldn't dress everything up in uh, overcomplicated language. I think. That's a really interesting comment because for many people in democracies, voting or political intentions don't tend to be who they are to exactly to that point. You know, there, there's the drama club and the gardening club and once every four or five years or so, you're asked to, to vote. But it's almost as if a spaceship has come down 
<laughs> you vote and then they, it goes back up. And I'm interested that you've described yourself as an activist and a bureaucrat. Do, do you think it's it's possible to, to to support people to link that political decision that they have to make every so often with their daily lives? I, I think increasingly so, right? Uh, because unfortunately we're at a point where we can observe the impacts of climate change you know my mother is a keen gardener and a very very good one as was my grandfather and she can observe in minute detail what's happened to the seasons what's happened to bird life what's happened to the flora uh, around her there's there's a great strength that comes from that then because it's knowledge in the true sense of the word. And so the political challenge ahead of us is not to terrify people and not to sort of talk down to people or not to sort of not engage, but to engage with people in a way that they can a be party to a discussion about, okay, what are we going to do about this? And then, and then be a party to the solutions because they're bringing knowledge. Obviously, as we record this, is that there's a vibrant political debate going on around just, just Stop Oil and their tactics and Extinction Rebellion and its tactics. But I, what I thought was powerful at the very beginning of the organising around Extinction Rebellion and the People's Assemblies was that you did unite grandparents with young people, right? The, the people who were getting hauled away off Westminster Bridge were, you know, the average age, I think, was in the 60s and 70s. They were grandparents. And then, obviously, uh, young people and, and then lots in between. And, and I think that uh, there is a political leadership challenge to engage people and bring them with you rather than speaking to their worst fears or inflaming their worst fears. And what was interesting is during the pandemic, there was a lot of, there's been a lot of writing around different leadership styles and there's a lot of uh, research on that. But there was a, a couple of observations around reciprocal vulnerability, which is the concept that in sort of expressing your own vulnerability as a leader, you allow people to come together to try to find solutions together. And of course, some of the writing pointed out that some of the leaders that did well at the beginning of the pandemic were women leaders, uh, Jacinda Ardern, who's obviously stepped down now, Meta Fredericks in Denmark, and their style of engagement in the is also on climate. Actually, was like, look, by 2040 we have to be net zero. Uh, we've got this pandemic coming. Uh, we don't have all of the answers, but we've got great scientists and we've got great businesses and we've got great communities and mayors and leaders. And so together we're going to figure this out, which was in stark contrast to the sort of bombastic Trumpian leadership and then obviously the chaos of, of, the, of the UK government's leadership. And so I think that there is a political responsibility that in leadership we have to empower people to act because we're, we're now talking about the very resilience of local communities and communities will have to help themselves to become more resilient as well as anything else we can bring from the outside. Let's move from community engagement and action to um, where you spent a, a large part of your career and uh, any biography of you has to be incredibly savagely edited because you've done so much and you've been uh, in, in so many positions of influence. Do you think it's that different to have a conversation between two heads of government than it is to have a conversation between 
to members of a local community, the, the, the sort that you've described. Is it, it, are the fundamentals yeah. the same? At the end of the day, it's about relationships. And there's a lot of statecraft that is brought to bear in terms of how governments are run, how governments engage with each other, how diplomacy is conducted, how international organisations are, are owned and led. But at the end of the day, if a relationship can be built, then things can go fast and things can be done. And you can, in that basis of trust, you can perhaps push the envelope out. And I've seen that again and again. I saw that between Ban Ki-moon and Jin Yong Kim, the then head of the UN and then the head of the World Bank, famously organizations that kept their difference and sometimes, you know, threw sort of shade at each other, but on climate change and sustainability, basically buried the hatchet and worked together. Uh, I've seen that also at the time of the financial crisis in 2008, where the G20 was just beginning and the, the close personal trusted relationships between Bob Zelik, who was then the head of the World Bank, and Pascal Lamy, who was the head of the World Trade Organization, allowed them to sort of confront leaders and say, one of the knock-on effects of the way in which you're coping with the financial crisis is that capital is being taken back to the developed world from the developing world and developing world businesses are going to have a real crisis in access to trade finance and capital and you know within weeks a workaround was was agreed so i think personal relationships personal trusted relationships are absolutely essential at at every level which is why i think you know some of my critique of the of the current uk government has been around their you know, the way in which they think about the need to have trusted relationships in a post-Brexit Britain where you, you can't rely on being a member of the European Union uh, anymore. This Pride Month, you, you wrote a piece about your experience. And I think uh, it was in, really interesting to read because you said uh, as a as a queer woman, whereas a man is seen as decisive as strong, as a queer woman, you're seen as bossy and abrasive. And I think that's an experience that, that many women uh, queer yeah, and straight, straight would queer. have yeah, yeah. would have an experience of. Do you think it, it, it has changed? Has your experience of your early career changed? And and if not, what do we need to do to make sure that we all get a seat at that table? So I wrote that piece because um, as dean, I would have students coming into my office and sort of basically asking me whether or not it was possible for them to have an international career. And those students weren't students of of privilege. Uh, from the United States or Europe, they were students coming from underprivileged communities within the US, or they were students coming from Nepal or India or Nigeria or places where it's difficult still to be able to be free to express your sexual orientation. But it would often be students who felt that there was something else about them that would count them out. And, And so whereas I think we've made enormous progress, it's still something that you have to factor in and so I would just talk to them about the fact that you know you you have to assess every situation you have to assess every room every every new organization every new committee you know is this gonna is this a committee where it, if I just say who I am or if I'm just clear about who I am is that going to have a negative impact I mean you go through that thought process even today and I think it's re- interesting you know I live in the United States and you know we we had an extraordinary uh ruling by the Supreme Court just a couple of weeks ago that really opens up the opportunity for this this court to roll back 
a lot of the rights that we've won over the last um, and then I think if you're depending on where you are in the world and depending on how you know privileged you are within that part of the world I think it, it can be extraordinarily difficult we've still got a journey to go and the other reason for writing that piece was that I've, I've been really lucky to work for employers who have gone on that journey with me or, or, or have been prepared to. And I think both the World Bank and the United Nations you know, were really good employers. And you know, I know how important that is. And I think you know, employers that do this well, it should be shouted out from the rooftops because not every employer does. Which, again, I think it's that point about supportive leadership, isn't there, that getting the best out of people who may not even realise the, the talents that they have, but they're supported through through compassionate leadership. Um, I, I wondered if I could move on to the TED Talk you recently did about ways to, to keep cool without warming the planet. There's a lot said about green tech and there's a lot of money at the moment in green tech and maybe some concern that uh, we're, we're hoping for a technical solution where we're still kind of driving ourselves off a cliff. Is there anything in that space that you think, yeah, do you know what, that might actually make a, a substantive difference to us? Well, it's so funny that you, you talk about that, you know, this week where we're suffering extraordinary uh, heat in the the southwest of the United States across the south of the US and I was preparing a lecture I'm going to deliver later this week and I was looking at the wet bulb temperatures uh, around the world so the wet bulb temperature is a is a mixture of heat and humidity and it, it gives you a number above which it is unsafe to be outside because your body can't sweat so you you can't keep yourself cool and we've always had hot, humid parts of the world. and We've always had heat and humidity. But because there's so much more humidity in the atmosphere because of climate change, we're now hitting up above these wet bulb numbers on a regular basis. And I was just quite stunned because, you know, I think uh, earlier this week, you would not want to be in Phnom Penh, Hanoi, Dhaka, other parts around uh, the Indian Ocean, but you'd also not really want to be in Abu Dhabi or anywhere on the Iranian side of the Gulf of the Straits of Hormuz. You would not want to be anywhere near San Antonio, Texas, or you know Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and you really wouldn't want to be in the Caribbean either. So, so we're at crisis point. So three things: one, there are clean tech solutions to being able to cool and dehumidify at the same time. And those technologies are developed and they need to be backed and they need to be made available at a reasonable cost because the people who are the most vulnerable are the ones who are living in perhaps social housing or somewhere in the world who are ill or infirm. We need that technology in hospitals and schools and, and other institutional buildings. So, that yes, it does require a tech solution. But secondly, you know, air conditioning is obviously both a necessity increasingly and obviously uh, done wrong a, a real dilemma because the question is not just more air conditioning but it has to be air conditioning that's affordable to the people who aspire to be able to keep themselves cool which means that they can afford cheap air conditioning and that cheap air conditioning must be free of hfcs which are 
pollutants in, in, in cooling and need to be energy efficient. Otherwise, we blow past through all of our projections around energy demand. And so, yeah, the global cooling fires a few years ago brought together, you know, hundreds of teams from around the world looking at how to produce cost effective, affordable, non-polluting, hyper efficient air conditioning unit, you know, for, for example, a low income Indian family. Right. And then we have to get behind it because we have to manufacture it and we have at scale and we have to make it available at a price point that people will use. And then third thing is is the resilience of communities because we need to have access to cooling, which is owned by the community. So that's not just cooling shelters in church basements and things like that, but it's also greening our communities, this particular greening low-income communities, which normally have much less tree cover, much less green cover than affluent communities. It really is this move now to have sort of cooling czars or heat czars in cities. You saw the city of Seville uh, give a name to a heat event earlier uh, this year, on the basis that if you name it just like a hurricane or a cyclone, then people pay more attention. And uh, you know, and then there's this massive education effort as that how deadly extreme heat is. And and then what we know from natural disasters like hurricanes or fires or, or tsunamis is that we have to understand our communities well. So who knows who's vulnerable within a community? Normally networks of women right they know where the elders are within the community they know where the kids are at any minute of any day therefore investing in the networks of women in in communities and the organizations that help women organize i think is critically important so you know back to the wi <laughs> to you know the girl guides and everything else right uh, this will be critically important to give communities the tools that they need to keep themselves safe i, I wonder if this is a part because you speak with real passion about this if this is the part of the, the next stage in your career you've announced recently that you're moving on from the fletcher school and your co-chair of the voluntary carbon markets integrity initiative there's private infrastructure uh, in your portfolio as well. Is is this the sort of thing that really excites you about making a tangible difference to, as you said, those communities that are going to be hit first and worst by really runaway climate change if we're not very careful? Or indeed are already, I mean, as you, as you quite rightly point out. Yeah, my decision to step down as dean was so that I could continue to teach, but that I could really get back into this work full-time because... Um, we have a window of opportunity. So windows open and close all of the time. And the geopolitics are very difficult. But the science is unrelentingly severe in its uh, interpretation. And so we've we've got to use the rest of this decade. And in fact, the political opportunity is really probably only another 24 months. And that's an opportunity to align the finance behind what needs to be done and maybe make some breakthroughs in how public finance is able to attract private finance, etc. And the thing I suppose I really I get in, in, passionate about is how to overcome the inertia and the incumbency, which really sort of slows everything down. You know, I've been privileged to, to see what happens to a community when you bring it off-grid electricity, for, you know, a community that's never had reliable, affordable energy before and suddenly has it. And you see how that not only transforms people's aspirations, I mean, they can now aspire to things. It, it transforms uh, the jobs that they can do. It transforms the relationships within a family because the woman can have a, a household-based business. You, you see everything just start to spark. And 
obviously you know, that's a that's a development story that is decades in the making but it, it's a critical story in climate change because it's the fight back against the narrative which is that you know we just have to continue with the old energy systems of the past and just hope that one day they reach the people they've never reached up till now it's like no actually we can decentralize energy we can digitalize energy we can decarbonize energy and in the process of doing that you're actually democratizing energy and if you democratize energy you actually start democratizing society and so i hope that we can continue to make progress there we were making progress in in bringing energy for all to everybody uh and then the impact of the pandemic and the impact of sort of inflation and dislocation of supply chains as a result of the pandemic knocked that progress back so now we have to pick ourselves up again and go even faster i'm really interested by you know, this stellar CV that you have and often the things that we keep out of it or the things that don't make it onto the CV are the really telling ones because they uh, sometimes they've been challenges, sometimes they've been failures. Are there any uh, challenges or failures in your life that you really think, do you know what, that was a, a real learning point for me in terms of where I went next with my career? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to students about the fact that they should not imagine their lives in like one steady line going up, that you go up, you go down, you go around, you know, and you, you step to the side, you can lead from behind, lead from the front, whatever needs happen, needs to happen. So I think it, both at the, the bank and at the university as well, I mean, understanding the pace at which people are prepared to be able to change. It's really important that when you're talking about change in an institution, or you, you identify who the change makers are. You, you identify who's comfortable with change and who's prepared to sort of support and lead others through that because, you know, some people are just deeply uncomfortable with change, which doesn't mean that they shouldn't or can't be part of it, but they need to be supported in a different way than the people who can. And certainly in the bank, there were moments when I went too fast there were moments where you were trying to bridge between leadership who wanted to go very, very fast and an institution that didn't want to go anywhere at all, and you get stretched. And, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I think the, the other thing is that you, you can't, you've got to win the, the, I mean, it's a terrible analogy, but you've got to win the war, not the battle, right? So working out where to sort of stand and fight, where to just step to the side and let that one go and, and also where do you make principled stands and where do you decide to sit and deal and you see that at the moment right in the energy transition and in you know what it what is the role of the oil and gas industry going forward globally they have a global footprint they're technically savvy they have deep pockets they have to be part of the solution but they have to be part of the solution on the terms of the transition, not on their own terms. And then how do you do that? And then there's a general frustration, I think, with young people, especially those marching on Fridays, that you know that these are you know evil institutions, right? And so there's not a lot of uh, ground upon which you can stand. So I think I find what I find myself doing now, whether it's in VCMI, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative or the work that I do on infrastructure finance, or the work that I do on energy access, or the work that I do to support some um, more grassroots-led entities, is that I think there's a leadership need to hold the centre ground or hold the space where reasonable people can agree and disagree, because that's going to be where progress 
can be made. And I, I found that at the university as well. I mean, one of the big challenges of uh, the universities in the US, but it's also true in the UK, is the freedom to be able to express a view mm. uh, that may be outside of the mainstream. And I, I spent a lot of my time as dean defending the academic freedom of the faculty, but also defending the the rights of the students to express themselves as long as they were doing so in a way that wasn't hateful or wasn't dangerous to others. And unfortunately, that's where we are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yes, I agree, quite a toxic landscape. But perhaps moving at thinking about uh, some, some of the people who are involved very much in this area and who are bringing people together, we did ask you uh, before we uh, had the recording, if there was anybody who particularly inspired you. And uh, I think you've got someone who, who has been, has centred on bringing often very diverse people together it, towards a, for a common get goal of, of climate change and, and carbon reduction. So there are so many people that inspire me, but uh, I chose Polly Billington. Polly Billington is one of those hyper-articulate doers like so this is somebody who's not afraid to get her hands dirty roll her sleeves up uh, she refracts light rather than absorbs it she doesn't she doesn't need to take a lot of the credit and she has done an amazing job in the last uh, decade or more in helping towns and cities around the UK to really get their head around uh, the climate challenge and of course you know there are international organizations of cities and they tend to focus on london and you know maybe a couple of other big cities but but polly's really brought people together at the municipal level across the uk and i think that that's been absolutely foundational stalwart absolutely essential work that if it wasn't there we would really miss it and i think she's put a lot of city leaders municipal leaders uh, their teams um, and, and their communities in a position to be able to cope with what's coming. She's also uh, you know, been one of the people that, despite the toxicity we just talked about, is prepared to stick her neck out in, a, uh, in an electoral environment and uh, has been involved in, at the municipal level in elected politics and is now going to be a candidate in the next general election. And I think we need more people like Polly in Parliament because they've done it, they've seen it, they're rooted, they're grounded. And I think she's just a brilliant communicator as well. So I'm, I'm in enormous admiration for the beauty and toughness that is Polly. Can you remember where you met her or what, what projects you've worked on together? So I, I met her actually on a panel at, at the UN in the, in the margins of a General Assembly or a Climate Action Summit related to the UN. And we were just uh, talking about, I think, community, I was talking about sustainable energy for all and what happens to a community when you get energy. She was talking about her work with cities or whatever. And we just hit it off, right? I mean, it was like, oh, I don't need to say anything on this panel now because she's going to say everything that I want to say. And then, you know, and then just watched what she did, you know, town by town, city by city. And then, you know, also one of those people who you can just get on the phone with and just sort of say, hey, I'm worrying about this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm concerned about that. Do you think I'm crazy if I think about this, you know? And I think you find that sorority or that solidarity, which is incredibly important, right? So people who can give you good advice because they care about your effectiveness and they care about the end goal. 
Um, I think she's uh, definitely one of those people. I know time is really tight, so I don't want to take, I don't believe me, I could lock you in a room and talk to you for hours because this is such an interesting and enlightening conversation. But um, I did want to ask, I mean, particularly your work around young people and despite the toxicity on, on some around free speech and debate and some compasses, are you hopeful for the future? It's It's very easy to sit, I mean, I've got friends, I've known for 30 years and you sit and you just try and not have the doom conversation or you think we're all going to hell in a handcart but do you have hope and optimism and what you know what would you tell your younger self if you were starting off in on, on this journey so i am completely hopeful the the graduate students i've worked with the last few years are absolutely awe inspiring i mean first of all they seem to be much more brilliant than i can ever remember being <laughs> age uh, but they, there's a grit and determination forced on them by the pandemic uh, but there is a, a complete acceptance that it is their lot to work through this climate crisis that we're handing them and to, and to work through the crisis of inequality and the crisis of the destruction of nature I mean they, they kind of like okay I'm going to put this on my shoulders and walk forward so I'm in, in, enormously inspired and and, and, and reassured, if, if not ashamed, that we've handed them such a mess. And then when I look at my own kids who are teenagers, so that's like a different species again. That's uh, And they're, they're just sort of down with it, right? I mean, yep, it's a mess. We're going to have to deal with it. We'll figure it out. There'll be solutions. They're not as hung up as we are by all of the boxes that we have to put everybody in. And they're just sort of kind of accepting of people in a way that I don't think uh, my generation is. What would I tell my younger self to be kind? I think I think I discovered kindness as I got older, and I don't think I was kind to myself when I was younger. And uh, yeah, I would. Uh, that's what I say to my graduate students: is be kind to yourself. You have a black book that would you know, that people would swoon with envy about. Um, and as you said, so much of the work that you've done is about relationships at the highest levels. Um, have you got a tip for networking if uh, if our graduate members and student members are listening? I was very, very bad at networking for a large part of my life because I was insecure. I didn't have a network. You know, my family didn't have a network. I didn't do internships. I, you know, I just didn't even know how to network. And what I saw at Fletcher, what I see now, is that depending on where you come from, you either come with a ready-built, ready-baked you know, network and you just it's just like natural to you, or it's like, I don't know, I don't have one, I don't know how to do this, or whatever. So first of all, the network's critically important. Do not underestimate it. And then it's just baby steps. It's saying hello and then and i i've been given good advice by coaches and mentors over the years so if you don't know what to say ask questions hi who are you what do you do people love to talk about themselves so just ask questions and i was also given really good advice when quite recently actually when i was in a situation where somebody had said it's something really quite hateful to me and i was talking to my coach about it and she said look you know just ask them a question. She said, well, what do you mean by that? You know, tell me more about what, what, and she said, you know, probably got nothing to say, but you know, if you haven't got a smart response, just buy yourself time by asking questions. So I think for the person who's insecure about their network or how to build one or whatever, ask questions and people will, people will gravitate to you. And do you use that? Is that a way you can also 
keep on learning as well because yeah, absolutely. it's a very fast changing very fast moving sector isn't it yeah absolutely i mean my 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 daughter gets anxious sometimes and i'll say to her you know i'm i'm very nervous i've got to go to this reception tonight or whatever and she looks at me like what do you mean you're nervous i'm like yeah you see you know i still i still have imposter syndrome i still get nervous i still i should look with her mouth wide open i said well i'm just going to go in and i'll I'll ask some questions and I'll, I'll find out about something that I didn't know about or I'll meet somebody I didn't know. I absolutely loved talking to Rachel, as you can probably guess from the conversation. Her optimism that change is possible really stuck with me, as has the idea that it's all about community. Now, you can find out more about Rachel's work and believe me, there's a lot of it in the show notes. And for more information about the podcast and the work that IEMA does, how we can help you start, develop and enhance your sustainable career, head to IEMA.net. My name is Sarah Mukherjee. Thank you so much for listening to Sustainable Matters. And on the next episode, we hear about the woman that Rachel has nominated as her hero, Polly Billington, Labour's MP candidate for South Thanet, who set up UK 100, an organisation for locally elected leaders committed to tackling climate change. She's a total realist who gets on with the unglamorous jobs. Like I say, I'm not bothered about who gets credit. It's about what can get done. Are there more people that can do this stuff? What is it that needs to be done? How can we get the right people into the right places to do the stuff that needs to be done? That's it. That's the only thing that matters, really. Now, to make sure you don't miss any of the podcasts, please do follow Sustainable Matters wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to rate, review and recommend it to a friend or colleague. Sustainable Matters, a podcast series full of solutions and optimism for a more sustainable world. Brought to you by AIMA, transforming the world to sustainability.